cliffcentral.com As per usual the Izinjas are in the house. Hello and welcome to the show. San Bonan Nonke. My name is Andrew Levy. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I am flying solo. Well, kind of, kind of solo today. Um, Rory and I are doing a swap. That's how it goes. You know, Rory, I go to like Bloemfontein. Rory goes to Switzerland. It's a great, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting the bum end of the deal there. It's just ridiculous. Um, so Rory Sanger will be back in two weeks time, uh, doing a little bit of Europe tour. So we are bringing in some co-anchors. To uh, help us out today Because you know I can't do this thing alone anymore It's just It's too tiring It's too And I'm too boring To be honest <laughs> So I thought I'd bring in Someone who's Exceptionally interesting Got a good story to tell And uh, tells it very well Catherine Constanides Change Agent 101 Thank you very much For joining <laughs> us today You are my co-anchor I'm very excited Thank you I'm very excited to be here You do tons of TV, you know, one day leaders, three day environmentalists, four days this. <laughs> so this is not new to you. You feeling excited? I'm very excited. Very honored that you would think of me to join you in studio. Now today. the big thing is you can't be a politician when it comes to this stuff. It's frankly speaking, eh? so you got to just open it up and and say what's on your mind. Um, as the co-host, normally you're the person we interview. So I'll give you a little bit of a, a chance to be interviewed, and then we hit our guests. How does <laughs> okay, that feel? Sure. <laughs> today we're speaking about none other than uh, climate change. I was in. Cape Town uh, last week and it really struck me when you when you fly over the Kharip Dam and you see no dam mm-hmm. that there's probably a problem there and uh, and then we experienced the 8 meter waves that hit uh, the coastline and it gave me this experience of how mortal we are as humans and I'm not saying it's climate change or it is climate change it's not that's that's not the, the the question, but it did make me wonder what is going on in this world. And then we saw Donald Trump, our great friend, who just got out of the, the Paris Accord like this after they had created it, which was hilarious. And um, it made me think a little bit more about this. And so upon doing a little bit more research, saw how Southern Africa is really being afflic- uh, affected by greenhouse gases, by climate change, and wanted to discuss how South Africa should deal with this. Do we really care about uh, climate change? What will the effects be and how, as individuals, we could do something about it? So that's kind of where we're at today, loosely speaking. Sure. Uh, I'm sure it'll go in many different directions. We've got a whole bunch of guests joining us. As I said, Catherine Constantinides is our guest co-anchor today as Rory Sang Shabalala takes a greenhouse gas uh, airplane all the way to <laughs> Europe. Um so, Catherine, you've been dealing in this space for a long time. Give us where it started for you. Um, what, what, what made you, as a young girl growing up in South Africa, white, privileged, um, you know, like living the South African life, how did, you know, the environment get onto your uh, radar? So, I grew up in a, in a home where many of my weekends were spent in a garden with my dad and he really taught us to become custodians of the environment and of the beauty that surrounds us so growing up I learned about the plants and the beauty of South Africa's rich heritage, natural heritage and I think that growing up I, I had this feel that I I did have a responsibility to take care of that environment and as I grew up I grew up very close to Soweto Soweto is my backyard and I realized that there was a huge disparity between 
you know, the city, the city life of Johannesburg where you see many green areas and then you have township areas where there was no green. Um, and these undergreened areas such as Orange Farm, Soweto previously and many other township areas, um, worried me. So as a young girl, I started doing programs where we would green the undergreen communities and we would try to share this love for the environment with others. So through the Miss Earth South Africa program, which we then, you know, started to really establish in South Africa, the idea was to really get young people to appreciate their role in taking responsibility for the environment. Climate change, if you believe it or not, if you believe the science or not, because that's controversial. But what you cannot deny is that human beings are having a huge impact on the way that the world is working. So, you know, I was in the U.S. last year and Trump's whole campaign, Trump for coal, killed me because how on earth is a country like the USA, who is part of the Paris Agreement, now have a president who who has pulled out of that agreement when years and years of work went into establishing and making sure that that Paris agreement was signed. I was in Paris the day that that happened. And to now see a country as powerful as the U.S. pull out is very difficult. But I think that now the power is in the hands of the people. So we're going to have to take a very different look at how we address climate change the world over. South Africa has a lot of work to do. However, as an organization, we we started working in the space when people thought climate change didn't exist, when global warming was something that happened elsewhere and didn't affect us. But I have, through my work, seen the impacts of climate change happen, and I've seen how it's affected communities both throughout our country as well as throughout the continent. Okay, I'm, I'm very rude because I just got straight into the conversation and you just went head gun-ho. Into- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. You're, you're very passionate about it. I didn't even introduce you correctly. I just said your name and hope that everyone knew who you were. Catherine Constantides, <laughs> um, global climate activist as well as founder, founder of uh, Miss Earth South Africa. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Or Miss Earth Worldwide? Miss Earth South Africa. Miss Earth South Africa. Yes. Okay. And uh, if you want to discuss uh, some stuff, if you want to ask some questions to Catherine, you can hit us up at yebo underscore L-E-V-Y or at Change Agent SA. Is that correct? That's it. Yes. 100%. Okay. So now that I've got all that out of the way and we're speaking <laughs> about climate change, frankly speaking, should South Africa care about climate change? Let's talk a little bit about the criticism that's come your way. Um, being in climate change, uh, what what is some of the criticism that you hear that's directed at you on social media or or maybe even in person if people are brave enough to do it about what you're doing with with your life, the whole Miss Earth uh, campaign and and events? Um, give us a little bit of the criticism and how you've been dealing with it. I think the hardest thing for people to deal with and the one thing that we always get criticized about is that we're dealing with issues around climate change when we have so many bigger social issues to, to, to deal with, especially as a country. And I think for me, this, this has been the largest criticism constantly. So over a period of years. So for many years ago, we realized that we could not address climate change if we were not addressing the social issues that we were faced with. Mm -hmm. And those social issues are the basic issues. When you go into a community, a community that battled to put food on the table, Mm -hmm. you need to address those issues first. You need to address the fact that food security is an issue. Mm -hmm. And we have to connect the dots because when people don't understand how under the umbrella of climate change and the environment, so many other things fall into play. For example, access to clean, safe drinking water. These are also all aligned to our human rights. Mm-hmm. So we need to talk 
about the basic social issues, how they link to the environment, and we have to find a way to make sure that we we have a message that talks to both. And I think that's been the success of the work that we've done on the ground because we've been able to actually manage both of those very carefully and very delicately. And once you're able to understand the community that you're working with, the challenges that they face, you're able to build a foundation to do so much more. Why is Miss Earth, and and I don't want to take away from our topic, but let's just handle this and then you and I are going to be co-partners. Sure. Why is Miss Earth always so beautiful? Oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if you think they're all beautiful, <laughs> thank you so much. Hold on a um, second, Catherine. Can't get away from it that easily. Because, I mean, one of the criticisms that I, I've read up on Miss Earth specifically, and not just Miss Earth SA, but this idea of using beauty to then raise awareness is is almost a little bit of a farce. It's like, oh, well, let's use a hot body or a beautiful smile to then uh, talk about climate change or to talk about fruit and vegetables and so on and so on. How do you respond to something like that? Well, what I can say is that human beings are quite fickle. So the one thing is that you can't deny that you will judge someone based on what they look like. You'll judge someone based on their appearance before they've even opened their mouth. So when you use a group of women who are firstly highly intelligent passionate about a topic and they happen to look a certain way, well, you're going to get a certain amount of attention Mm. and you're going to get that attention because people are interested in listening. Mm. And it's because these people be intrigued by what these young women firstly have to say and what they're actually doing. So the Miss Earth program allows that these young women are educated and go through extensive workshopping on these issues. And then they have specific views of their own Mm. around issues such as fracking, water security, looking at um, renewable energy, nuclear, all those kinds of things. And you can actually have an intense conversation with this young woman who's actually versed on these kinds of topics. However, she got to being Miss Earth or being one of the Miss Earth ambassadors because of the extensive on-the-ground work that she does. Mm-hmm. So they are judged and uh, you know, they become Miss Earth based on the work that they've done. And if you actually take a look at the work that they're doing, it's phenomenal. They're currently doing waste programs in their communities. We're working with Pick It Up in the city of Joburg. And we have in the last week done more than a 100 cleanups across the country. Mm. And those cleanups are to activate community conversations around waste. How are we dealing with waste? What are the waste challenges that different communities in different places in our country are faced with and how do we make sure that these young women can be agents of change in their communities that for me is crucial so people will say what they want and that's okay but we understand the impact that we're having at a grassroots level flip it around for a second have you ever used your looks to get attention towards a certain cause i mean (laughs) given the fact that the world is what it is misogynistic uh, pater- uh, paternalistic patriarchy um, based on sex cells and, and all those kind of things. Uh, you are a good looking woman. Have you ever used that to, to gain perspective and I suppose on, on issues that might not have got a spotlight if they were just randomly put, to, put in people's faces? So I haven't used what I look like to to get certain things but I think that Certain people have given me certain attention because of what I look like. Mm. And I, again, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I may not be beautiful to some people. And to some people, I may be very awkward looking. I may be whatever you might think. But because I'm passionate about what I do, I think people will give me the attention. And, yeah, you know, 
people do put you in a certain box and you get certain attention and certain platforms because people perceive you in a certain way because of how you look. Mm. It's just the way of the world. So I wouldn't use my looks. I don't know exactly how I would do that specifically, mm. but I take what I'm passionate about and I drive that. And I think, um, I'm, I think what confuses people is because I do kind, the kind of work I do and I look a certain way. So people think, uh, I love, I love dressing up. I love heels. I think there's nothing wrong with a woman who looks good. And people can't place that with somebody who works in a community and is doing a cleanup in a river. Mm. Um, you know, three quarters in a river, in her clothes, doing something. So they, they, they fault in their own mind to be able to bring these two pictures together the same way that, you know, when I work on the issue of the Western Sahara and climate justice, they can't understand how I physically actually live in a refugee camp. Mm. And that's that's their own thing to deal with. But I think people confuse the fact that um, it doesn't matter what you look like. You can achieve whatever it is that you want to. OK, so Rory and I do this thing before we start speaking to our guests where we talk about where are we sitting um, on this specific issue. Mm-hmm. So how you feeling about it? Um, where do you sit before we get into this? Because we want to be honest and open to our listeners sure. as to where we're sitting. Um, now obviously you're a, you're a huge activist in this space, but if we had to talk about should South Africans care about climate change, where's your feeling right now? I mean, I know you're passionate about it, but sure. how are you feeling about climate change in South Africa just generally? You know, generally I think if we're realistic about it mm. and frankly speaking, there South Africans She's Do not. Into, look at this. Look at this. This is great. <laughs> South Africans don't really care about climate change. That is what it is. They may care about food security. They may care about the fact that we have huge, uh, huge issues around drought. Um, the water issue we face in the Western Cape. We had it here in Joburg, uh, 18 months ago. For almost two years, we were in a drought period. South Africans care about those things. However, if you move across the country, you go to the Western Cape, and in the Western Cape, people are more conscious. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely more aware of climate change, sustainability, living in a greener manner, and the impacts that they have as individuals. I think a lot of work has to be done nationwide, though. When we talk about Western Cape, you you really mean the city of Cape Town, right? I mean, I'm assuming that Bontaheerville isn't as health-conscious and environmentally conscious as other places. Absolutely. The city of Cape Town. Okay. Um, you can look at places though, like you go outside to the city of Stellenbosch. You look at Stellenbosch as well. There are pockets across the Western Cape region mm-hmm. where people are just different minded to those in Johannesburg. All right, let's bring in a Cape Tonian, uh, Dion Roberts. Uh, you're the managing director and program director, uh, sustainable brands program director of GBCSA and director change agent collective. Is that correct, Dion? Cheapest. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Dion, good morning to you. Dion, are you there? Hello? Right, we'll try and get him on. Okay, um, you've heard of Dion? Has he been in your... So, I must say, I had the privilege of exactly, almost to the day, four years ago, to be in Facebook Turkey told you about that. Dion. <laughs> no, no, it didn't, but I should go and look because surely we've got a picture somewhere. I had the privilege of being in Turkey with Dion at the Climate Reality Training Program hosted by Al Gore, and... Um, I'm a huge fan of the work that he does. He does fantastic work uh, based in Cape Town. So, yes, I, I'm absolutely aware of the great work that, that Dion does. All right. So I'm going to let you just start asking questions to Dion as my co-host because it's just fair that way. Let's see if he's on air now. Dion, good morning to you. 
Morning. Hey, there we go. You know, city of Cape Town's always there's always <laughs> issues. A bit delayed. A bit delayed. There's always a bit of a delay. Always a bit of a delay. Dion, thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Uh, before I let Catherine go wild on you, um, I just wanted to ask you. Catherine said that the Western Cape is doing great things in terms of environmental change and being eco aware. What are your thoughts, being a Cape Townian and living in in the city and the province, about how well Cape Town and Western Cape is doing? Um. I don't want to bring politics into it, but I am going to. Um, I think the Western Cape government has for a long time seen the opportunities within the problems of the interconnected issues of climate change. So renewable energy, job creation, uh, recycling, um, urban agriculture, they've really supported those initiatives. Um, and our mayor is also one of the G40 climate change mayors, um, which is linked to the Paris Agreement. So I think... Yeah, the West Cape government, and, and because of what happened here with the draft, especially in the last year, it's really brought it to the forefront, not just to the political sphere, but to the homeowner. All right, uh, Dion, I want to try you on a different line just because there's a beautiful, uh, pinging sound, which we love so much. Catherine, okay. your, th- your thoughts, uh, very quickly on, on what Dion's saying. Do you think that Cape Tonians have become more aware simply because of the, the drought warnings everywhere? Look, it's not just the drought warnings. I think the drought warnings have been f- very important. I think they're actually very important for those traveling in and out of Cape Town as well because uh, you arrive in the airport, the signage is everywhere, so you're constantly aware of the fact that there's a drought. It's critically important, but during this period of time. What we forget is that sometimes I think, I don't know if it's human nature, but in Johannesburg, we lifted the drought, um, you know, the drought levels, drought the, warnings the, and- the warning levels, all those kinds of things. And we forget that we actually have to be conscious. Mm. We forget that we have to still save water. We come from a semi-arid country. We, we're not, you know, we actually import our water. So we forget these kinds of things. I think he makes an important point that, you know, politics are interlinked with the issues of climate change. And I think that that has played a very important role in the Western Cape. And yes, there's a very progressive understanding of, um, urban agriculture, job creation, looking at renewable energy. And in fact, the mayor of the city of Cape Town has been very progressive and has sat on many international climate um, platforms mm-hmm. and really promoted the fact that Cape Town and South Africa are are very um, are doing very important work across the country. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are links between politics and and what gets done, mm-hmm. but. I think so much more still needs to be done on a national level. Okay, let's see if we've got Dion back on the line. Dion, are you there? Still having a bit of delayed troubles with Cape Town. Um, right, Catherine, now that you and I, you see, this is what we call padding. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got... Um, we, we, we're going to get a whole bunch of other people into, into studio and, and on the phone as well. We're going to be speaking to a guy by the name of Sipo Kings. He's the mailing guardian environmental writer as well. Um, as well as Dora Marema. So just quickly, Catherine, you know, you, you speak about how you go into, um, townships quite often to do a lot of climate change activism. What's the response, you know, before you start speaking and before you start cleaning and doing your thing? What's the general response of people? Who you engage with? I think because of my sort of long-standing relationship with relationship with many communities that I work in, um, there is a foundation of trust and respect, and I think anything can be built on that. And 
that was built 10, 15 years ago when I started working in those areas. Mm -hmm. Before I specifically was working on climate change, I was working in those areas basically on community development. So I think that when, when you go in and you start to discuss something as intense and scientific as climate change, the one thing that, that is, is quite exciting is that people are interested to listen to you. They're interested to have a conversation, to have a dialogue. And my passion of food security and urban agriculture is one thing that I can really share with communities because it's something that they can learn and understand. And it's something that actually traditionally they've always done. So we find that in a lot of communities, people live a lot more sustainably than we do right here in the city. All right, let's introduce our next guest in studio today. Catherine, you're going to be interviewing uh, Dora as well. Dora Marema, how are you? I'm good, thanks, and how are you? I'm good. Let's just bring that mic in there a little bit. Yes. There we go. Hey, <laughs> nice to have you on, on, on board with us today. Thank you. Um, you're the coordinator of Gender CC, Southern Africa Women for Climate Justice Network. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, what do you do? Well, with Gender CC, we work on issues of uh, integrating gender into climate change. And uh, that basically involves working at a policy level, but also on the, on the, on the local level. Mm-hmm. Um, we very much would like to influence the policy that government is putting in place, including strategies, to make sure that they're just not blind in terms of knowing how they're going to be impacting the both, you know, the the, the gender roles and uh, in the communities. Uh, we have seen that in the advent of climate change, there has been a, a bit of a shift in terms of the gender roles that males and females play, um, as the natural resources are getting are getting deplete, depleted. As men traditionally in rural areas have been rearing livestock that they are not able to rear any of because there's no livestock anymore because mm-hmm. of droughts. They are now taking some of the. Uh, so-called roles like for example collecting firewood not only for the home but also for selling they have to they have to generate an income for for their own family so they're moving into the so-called care uh, care jobs that have been traditionally associated with women and we find that there's, a, there's also a bit of migration that as the males some of them some of the males are not able to do what they traditionally have been doing which is farming cash crops and rearing livestock moving out into cities to do other jobs uh, that women are starting to move move into that into those areas as well okay before i mean wow you've just spoken about a billion different issues so that's great news let me ask you a quick question before i get Catherine to to bring her voice into this Catherine's the eternal optimist so we must know that where she sits (laughs) right she's the eternal optimist and uh, she talks about when she goes into into i suppose developing communities townships that there is a lot of awareness there's a lot of um, goodwill in terms of of climate change and and speaking about these issues do you find that as well um yeah we work in both rural and urban areas we uh, we and we work also in the south southern african context in mozambique and uh, zimbabwe and other areas what we find is that Even though the people don't know the term climate change and they can put adaptation and mitigation, whatever, but they can, they are able to, to show you how they've been experiencing a change in climate. They can show you an orange, which is so big like this, but actually inside is so tiny. They are able to show you, they are able to inform you that, um, there is a decrease in the amount of Mopani worms that they harvest on a yearly basis. Mm. They can inform you how the Amarula trees have started fruiting early. 
rather than at the time when they're supposed to be fruiting. So there is evidence that they can put forward and um, they, they attribute it to their natural environment by observing because many of them work by observing uh, the rains and how the rains start, you know, when they start raining so that they can start taking their crops. And they can tell you how maize has just been declining and then increase in some of the traditional nuts, for example, in Mpopo that have just been loving the drought and multiplying in volumes, right? So the, there is awareness in terms of, the, because they are so connected to the natural environment that they are able to see any shift and any change. And they are so quick to find solutions in terms of how do they now adapt, that we do not have to go and find things sitting in boardrooms. We almost need to go down and spend time with them uh, because they live in the environment, they interact, and they are so, they are so resilient and they find ways of adapting to the changing climate. I think the important thing that I want to chat, you, you've mentioned it exactly. They don't term it as climate change, but they understand exactly the different changes and things that are happening. And I think that what we sometimes forget when we're looking at policy, we're looking at, um, you know, what is it that we're doing from a strategic level at a national level in government, etc. Often sometimes I feel that people have missed actually understanding people on the ground. So policy is sort of disconnected to the people on the ground. From the work that you do um, under Gender CC, what do you feel is the most important thing that we have to try to address from a challenge perspective when it comes to policy development in climate change for South Africa? Is to, is to, is to, is to be able to go to the ground, to be responsive, to not uh, sit somewhere, um, and come up with these ways. I mean, I've been recently talking to the Department of Environmental Affairs, they were doing monitoring and evaluation of the adaptation strategies mm-hmm. and that they're coming up with and said, where is the voice? How can we be able to, 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 to go into the ground, harness that experience, yeah. people are already doing it, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't require us to go and manufacture some responses up there and try and find ways to, uh, to, to, to make them relevant mm-hmm. to the people. Uh, Policy makers need, need to also bring in this community, special, com- community development, gender ex- specialists, all these people who are specialists in terms of how you communicate with the people on the ground, mm-hmm. how you translate what they have been doing and observing into policy, because I think that is what is missing. Policy is so uh, d- d- totally disconnected. Mm-hmm. It's so scientific. It's based on scientific research, which, of course, we need. We need the projections. We need to be told by, by the, 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 the scientists what, what, how climate change is going to be affecting South Africa. But how it manifests to a man and woman on the ground is a little bit different from what the scientists, you, you know, kind of come up with. And we need to be able to bring in the room the people themselves, to be able to say this is how we feel in the climate change and this is how we've already started to, 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 adapt, to adapt. Africa, we Africans, we're so, we're so great. We're so, we can adapt mm. because climate change is not one of the first things. There have been famine, there have been droughts decades ago and people have been able to invent ways in which they are able to, to, to live. Catherine, you, you are often seen as the ambassador for everything climate change in the boardrooms. Um, you spend a lot of time of your time there, not because you want to, but because I suppose you're asked of it and this is the way to raise attention. Do you often feel that what Dora is saying is, 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 is bang on? We, we love to talk in echo chambers about things that we can do and then have these symposiums of climate change and how corporates can get involved in climate change, but then no one does a damn thing or they give a minuscule amount of money um, and don't actually really do a thing. They, they don't get their hands dirty, um, the green thumb, as one would say, and actually make a change. You know, there's, there's, 
there's two things to this. Firstly, I think that not enough corporates are actually investing money under the banner of climate change. You know, there's a lot of CSI funding that goes to a lot of other issues, but nobody really wants to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to environmental greening programs and climate change programs. There are very few corporates that are doing what you know what they say they can do and what they they would are prepared to do etc and putting the money behind that i think we have to be careful of greenwashing especially when it comes to corporates but i think that we've gone what, through what a period what is greenwashing greenwashing where you pretend you you know you 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 allow people to think that you are doing certain things more environmentally conscious more sustainable but you actually not you do it just to tick a box my biggest thing when i work with corporates and the corporates that i choose to work with have to be like minded in their vision that addressing the issues of climate change and sustainability within a corporate environment cannot just be to tick boxes but it has to be because it's the right thing to do there's a big difference and you know, being the eternal optimist, I understand that that difference, um, there, there's a very gray line, but people need to understand exactly why they're doing something and there has to be a long-term investment. So a company really needs to understand that they have to really put out money, for example, to make sure that they are using the right kind of energy infrastructure within their systems, uh, be it their buildings, their, um, uh, you know, wherever they're based energy, water, looking at reductions, looking at the value chain. It can't just be one thing where you put a sign up at your front door and therefore you think that you are, you're doing great things. We need to make sure that throughout the value chain of corporate entities, they are being more sustainable and more conscious of the use of renew, you know, different natural resources, etc. I also find though that sometimes there is a disconnect where we have talk shops, but we're not doing enough on the ground and we have to make sure that we balance the discussions that need to actually be had because there's not enough information out there. The information that we often get and I think why people don't understand climate change is because we are using a science scientific language that doesn't connect with people. So people understand what is going on, but we need to understand and talk to them in a language that they understand because we can't talk in a scientific language where everyone starts to shut off. We need to understand that people need to digest climate change and the impacts thereof in a way that it connects to them. Let's bring in Sipo Kings here. He's the environment reporter at the Mail and Guardian. Sipo, thank you so much for joining us today. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Let's uh, let's get into it. You wrote an article very recently about the fires in Neisner and how this is a direct result of of climate change. Can you explain that a little bit? So uh, we're not saying it's a direct result. It, like with all these things about climate change, it it amplifies things. So you know, the extreme drought in the Western Cape meant that all those timber plantations were really dry. Conditions were there for fire to spread really as crazily as it did, and these mega storms that you're seeing are going to be happening more frequently. So, you know, it's like a test case almost for us for what we're going to be seeing this century. Um, you spoke about uh, in that article what uh, is termed, and I've never heard of it before, the National Adaption Strategy. Help me yeah. understand what, what is the National Adaption Strategy? Who's it being uh, promoted by, and, and where's it going? So, the the current one is in the draft phase, which is important to start from. But we, when we talk about climate change, we all get caught up about, you know, we have to have fewer greenhouse gas emissions. We need to stop ESCOM building coal power stations. That's the narrative that's happening. But the climate change that 
is happening, is going to be happening for this, let's say, this century. So we've got to prepare communities for that kind of thing, to make them stronger, to make sure that they have, let's say, irrigated crops so that they don't rely on rainfall. And when that rainfall fails, obviously, then they don't have food. So the national strategy is government's attempt to try and say, this is what every single department is doing. Let's put it in one like one big piece of planning, and then we can tell everyone what we're doing, and then we can do it, hopefully. Sipo, um, uh, it's great to have you on. I think that you're one of um, the most progressive uh, journalists within the space and you've been in the space for a very, very long time. What I want to ask you is what do you feel um, from the space that you, you sit in and the things that you're exposed to from a journalism perspective? What do you believe is the greatest challenge that we're faced with when it comes to climate change nationally? South Africa, we're lucky to be in this position that we have basically the best laws in the world, all things environment. You know, you've got Section 24 of the Constitution, which says we have to have a, we have to have a clean environment and things like water and that sort of thing. And we've got that, and most countries are fighting for those rights. And so that's our problem is the implementation part, where because national government, because it is the way it is, and we all know the way it is, um, environment programs get ignored. So at a municipal level... They get underfunded or there'll be some guy in an office at ESCOM who's busy trying to do, you know, the renewable energy program and people just ignore him or someone at another department just plugging away. And they don't have the political backing to do this kind of stuff. So we never implement the recall plan. Dora, I mean, your your experience of this whole thing, um, looking at, at, at what's happened with the Gupta gate leaks, it's funny that we use all sorts of environmental terms, gate leaks. <laughs> um, is it a little bit like overwhelming and, and almost, uh, you know, helpless, a feeling of hopelessness that, you know, the Guptas have a specific agenda, which is to make as much money as, as they want. They seem to have all the SOEs on lockdown, one of them being ESCOM, one of them being coal. Um, they're a huge supposedly contributor to the coal, to our energy plants. Do you just feel a little bit of of hopelessness when you when you hear these headlines, or is it is it a situation of you know that on the ground there's a good groundswell movement? Yeah. I think I think I, I'm I'm an, I'm a, I am also an eternal optimist. I do not. I mean, there are days where I just switch off from this news, but we're doing some great work with Gender CC and the Greenhouse Project and the, another program I run with Seed Community. Yesterday, we had some great news. We put together a business plan to set up a green business college in the inner city of Johannesburg in Lorenzoville next to Nando's head office. And uh, there, we want to bring young people who are unemployed to learn the green skills and then set up a fund next to them for startups. And we're focusing on energy, water, all these areas where we're supposed to be. And we're linking that because our people have been saying, you've been raising awareness. We've been coming and running workshops. We now want to take these things mm. into another step. They are demanding cleaner energy, renewable energy, instead of being electrified in some areas where they don't have access to electricity. But if we do not create opportunities for them that are really, what we're doing is low tech. And we, we had the privilege yesterday of getting um, a call from Hilti Foundation in Switzerland saying they're giving us the funding to start up. How much? Give us the bank account. Wow. So for us, we are, for me, I'm excited. And these are the things that we do with our own initiatives. We're not, we've been knocking doors. Uh, Investec may be coming, whatever. We've been knocking on doors here. But I find that 
links I have overseas are much more quicker. They get this. It's not a, 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 a grant. It's, a, it's an investment. We have to make this work, right? And we'll pay the, it's an interest-free loan. It's based on the concept we've been doing with education on seed community, giving girls um, access to education through interest-free loans. We have to pay it after 10 years. But what it means is that on the 1st of August, we're opening our doors. People have already signed up. We had open days where people who are not trained are going to be training others because we're going to invest in their training. We're going to take this concept, if it works, to all over South Africa, even Southern Africa. Wherever we have run workshops around awareness raising of climate change because we say for us to be able to move and people need to eat. They can't do business of business as usual. They can't be going out and cutting wood. What is there that we can do? They can be building uh, uh, biogas digesters. They could be building this and that. And we need to teach them the skills and attach the entrepreneurship concept towards that so that they can take that because there are a lot of young people in these areas as well. So we're bringing everything together. So for me, yesterday I was excited in regardless of what the Guptas are doing. Me as one person with my friends here and there, the three of us, if we can put this together and be, make it so successful and that that someone, a big corporate like Hilti, see this as worthy. This is what we can be able to do, regardless Jeez, of what I'm they're doing. I'm surrounded by bloody optimists all over the place. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Just to remind you what we're talking about, frankly speaking, should South Africa care about climate change? Um, Sipo, uh, you, you're still on the line here. We've got a great conversation going on in studio. Do you think South Africans should care about climate change, given the space we're in, given the political climate we're in, given the fact that we're in an economic recession, given the fact that over 60% of our country is, is, is poverty-stricken? You've been in this game for a long time. You've been writing about individual stories regarding environmental and, and climate changes. Do you think that South Africans should care about climate change, or do you think that there are other things to deal with? I think we've got... I guess it's a branding issue with the terms environment and climate change where because that, you know, in some sense of those things and you think of a barefoot activist eating, I don't know, guavas and wearing hemp clothes. <laughs> you, <laughs> Are those activists uh, eating guavas? Hey? They're, they're the worst type of activists. Yeah, <laughs> the worst of the worst. Um, yeah, because they've got really bad branding. You know, it's, that's why you have people saying, should you care about climate change? Because it should be as simple as, you know, you want to breathe clean air, right? We all want to breathe clean air. In all our cities, we don't. You want to have clean water. In most places in South Africa, you don't have clean water. And it's that idea of, we should be having this conversation on, I want to live in a world that is actually pleasant to live in. And that's what environment, and that's what climate change is. It's, you know, climate change is going to make all these other things much harder to have, all these not even luxuries, you know, they're, they're constitutionally guaranteed rights. Mm. And if you phrase it in that way, it's not even a, it's a no-brainer, right? We want these things. It's inalienable. Let uh, let me bring in the the complete opposite of the guava eating barefoot activist, <laughs> the high heel mud swigging Catherine Constanides. Um, I just thought of the you and your high heels <laughs> cleaning up the rivers is a is a good is a good visualization. Um, South African government recently lost uh, the country's first climate change lawsuit. The High Court ruled against its plans for a coal-fired power station, the latest in a rising tide of international climate litigation. 
is that a is that a turning moment? Is that a watershed moment in South Africa that that um, our legal system at least are going? Hey, hold on a second. You know why are we doing coal? Why are we looking at nuclear when we have the most sun? Mm. You know, in specifically in places like the Northern Cape, um, the Western Cape, um, parts of of the Free State that we can use solar energy. We have a huge amount of wind. I've always been encouraged when going down to places like Jeffrey's Bay, you see all the wind turbines running around. It's, it's quite fantastic and, and incredible. Is, it, is this a good moment? Is this, some, is this a change? Is this it, is a huge moment, not only for South Africa, but I think globally, you know, uh, I saw so many conversations happening within climate communities around the world around this specific um, court case. I think this really talks to our justice system looking outside of the traditional coal-based uh, industry that we, we come from as a country. I also think it's really important, though, as an activist for me, it can't just be a conversation that we must only go renewable because you have to be realistic. We cannot remove coal from our energy space. What we need to push for is a better renewable energy mix or energy mix as a whole where coal is there, but we're actually pushing and making sure that renewable energies are a bigger part of the energy mix in our country. As you've said, we have the most unbelievable opportunity to optimize on renewable energy in this country, and we're just not doing enough yet within that space. There are unbelievable pilot projects that have happened nationwide around around solar, wind, um, even even hydropower. And I just think that we need to have the political will and the political backing to ensure that those kinds of programs do go to scale because mm. there are job opportunities there. The job creation side of renewable energy is massive and the cost of renewable energy comes down each and every year. And we've seen this as a global trend. So I think that that court case was really critical. It was a watershed moment. It was most certainly an important moment in our justice system moving forward within this bigger space of climate change. And I think that the discussion around coal, ESCOM, as you mentioned, you know, the political climate that we find ourselves in where our energy, ESCOM is, is, is in an absolute mess. We need to make sure that we're pushing renewable energy as part of an energy mix for our country where people do have access to renewable energy, new infrastructure where there are new homes or where um, people are given energy for the first time. Let it be renewable energy mm. as opposed to us taking uh, them online within a power grid like, like ESCOM. Let us make sure that we're giving them opportunity to be a part of a renewable energy generation. So Dion Roberts, uh, one of our guests who unfortunately we couldn't speak for long because there was a bit of a, an interference, uh, Cape Town, Cape Town Telecommunications, spoke about how he didn't want to get political. Dora, let's bring you in here. The idea of give back our land has been a huge thing in South Africa. Uh, we want to talk more land redistribution, restoration, um, and of course – you know, climate change comes into that because if, if we give land without um, proper infrastructural resources, what happens to that land? If it's agrable land that then gets, um, gets given to people that don't know how to use it correctly, do we lose our food security? What do you, you know, you've been on the ground quite a bit. How, what are your feelings around this kind of stuff and these statements? Um, I first want to wanna actually take opportunity to – I am associated with Earth Life. And uh, I sit on their board, and ah, this for us which, was which uh, re- uh, <laughs> do it, girl, do it, do it. Moment, so I, I must just say that, yeah, because we're still well basking in the sun. Well done, well so done. um very excited. I'm the chair of the board at the moment. Awesome. So I, congratulations. I, 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 yeah. 
So Earth's Life took me, this to, to the courts, yes, just, just so that we to give people, listeners a little bit of in, in this, environmental NGO yes, Earth Life Africa yes, challenged the yeah. government's approval and won. So congratulations. Yeah, okay. And um, so for me, it's um, I mean I look at the issues of land, right? And and as, as you mentioned, at the moment the land. Um, who you know the land that has been used for 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 agriculture is mostly in the hands of commercial agriculture, mm. and we know the challenges that come with uh, commercial agriculture because it is agriculture is not only a sector that is affected by impacted by badly by climate change; it's also a huge contributor. The, the way that commercial farms are run, you know, and and if we're talking about food security, commercial agriculture is not going to be a solution for that. Mm. We know that. We the same with energy. We need to decentralize. Right, and we cannot all have. This is why we ended up with the whole, with the whole, um, what you call load shedding. Because if one something a bolt is left in some in some power generation somewhere, the whole nation shuts off. Mm. It's not sustainable. We should be decentralizing our our energy. The same with 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 food. So if land is given to groups that have proven themselves and have have been working uh, uh, um, on, on 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 sustainable agriculture, on organic agriculture, on permaculture agriculture, they they should be given access to that land because and then. The, the major thing that we, we, need, we need to emphasize, we shouldn't be transporting tomatoes from ZZ2 farms in Zanin to come to, to go to a pick and pay somewhere in the free state or, or mm. in, in the Northern Cape. Mm-hmm. We should be decentralizing our food systems where people are producing food in where they are, using the land that is available mm. to take care of the food, the needs of the, their own first and then their neighbors. Right, like if you've got a a, 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 a solar energy generation in your house, you invested in it. Mm. You take care of your energy first, and then you feed back into the grid. Mm. And I'm hoping that that feeds, even that like they have it in Germany and other countries where you feed into your local neighborhood. So that what when when something is, is is affected, me who lives out in Kahiso in the Westland, I um, should be able to to still function to continue, because yeah. I'm not dependent on on that one central system. Mm. This centrality of things doesn't doesn't help many many doesn't help us at all with be it food be it uh, be it energy because we've seen that it not only transporting food from one province to the next contribute to, to the emissions in terms of transport and also the way that commercial agriculture functions that we need to start looking at how can we support i believe food security is, is really a critical thing and and the small the so-called smallholders mm. are the are the are, are the ones that are going to assist us to be able to do this because also in commercial agriculture a lot of food waste is generated the mm. food doesn't reach it's not that we're running short of food it's about access the food doesn't get to the people and how do we make sure that that happens I, w- I want to really, you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head on that point. And centrality is really something we have to address, especially when it comes to food security. I'm a huge believer we have to invest in that local farmer and make sure that we're able to actually invest in local economies through making sure that we, we are looking at, at local farms, etc. I do have a question for Sipo quickly. Go for it. Um, Sipo, I wanted to ask you, within the space of climate change and over the period of time that you have been at Mel and Guardian. Do you feel that the media in this country give enough airtime and space to issues around the environment, stories on climate change and the environment? Or do you think these stories often, you know, I don't feel that they get the prominence that they often deserve because sometimes these are the stories that make the pages, you know, 12, 14, 25 in a newspaper. But how do you see from a media perspective? There's still 25 pages in a newspaper. (laughs) How do you see um, the the media having grown within this space and giving prominence to these kinds of stories? I've been lobbying our new editor, Khadija, 
to have like environment from page one to page twenty every single week, right? Because it, you know, it, it is the biggest overall issue that we're facing this century because it it covers all the other issues. It is everything, but I think the great problem is there's a disconnect between how big an issue it is and the attention we give it as a media because it it seems as a luxury. It's, it's a beef, right? It's like science, it's like business, all these kind of things. And what's been happening since about 2009 is retrenchments of environment reporters or, you know, people get squeezed out of that kind of thing. So there are very few dedicated environment reporters, which is probably the biggest issue. So the media doesn't cover it because there's just there aren't people in the media who know what questions to ask or what to focus on. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know, it, it, it can be thoroughly depressing in that way because there's, there's so many stories of how we should be adapting as a country, what communities are doing and where communities are losing out because some big conglomerate or someone who's well-connected is destroying their water source or their own environment and making sure that when the climate does change that they don't have the resilience to survive. And we're not investigating those things because we just don't have the resources and there are not enough people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there, there really is a massive disconnect from the size of the issue to how much reporting we were able to do. And in an ideal world, what would you like to see happen within the next five years within the media space um, around climate change and the environment? I'd love to see just having more reporters talking to people. You know, going to because climate change is this you know this foreign issue to so many people. That, like they all know that the climate is changing, but the brand of climate change doesn't relate to people's lives as they see it. Mm. So we just need to have reporters going to communities, going to places, and chatting to people, and saying, you know, how's the rainfall changed in the last thirty years, and finding those goggles who lived through it all, and bring it home to people. Like, look, this is our country, and the climate is changing. It all is changing, but now it's happening faster. And these are the kind of things we should do. Just to get that conversation, you know, make it the conversation people have every day. Like the way we South Africans talk about politics, we should talk about climate change. Sipo, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We're running out of time. Oh. Appreciate your time, and uh, please check out Sipo Kings. He is the environmental writer, one of the the biggest and the best. Uh, he writes for the Mail and Guardian, uh, so check him out on Facebook and Twitter um, for more information on environmental issues in South Africa. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. So. Ladies, we are finishing up. This conversation could have gone for hours and hours and hours. I want to move it slightly, move the needle slightly. How, as an individual, could I, um, and I want to talk about affluent and non-affluent people, Mm. right, do something today or tomorrow to make a real change in climate change? And, of course, it won't be a once-off activity, but what could I do? Um, in my personal capacity, and let's, let's, let's excuse donating for a mm. second. I know that's a big part of it, mm. donating money and funds. What could I do in my personal capacity tomorrow to make a big change or a little change in climate change? Um, I, can, I could just start with the biggest one. Like Energy is actually a, a huge one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not only in terms of we're talking about ESCOM and the country moving from coal to or nuclear to renewable or having renewable being part yes. of it's actually about 
our we are the ones that that creates demand. Mm-hmm. So it starts in my home. It starts in my office. So in my home, uh, leaving the, the the stuff, the appliances on, cooking, you know, uh, um, meals while you could be having a hot bag where you boil stuff and move into the hot bag to have your stew cooking or your your rice boiling or like really these smaller things that makes adds up. You know, it, it, into the lights. When you replace your globes, make sure that you're buying those low energy globes. I know they cost a lot, but they also last long, mm-hmm. right? And they may not give you the brightest light as people think, but they've got all of this other. There's, there's in that in those instances, there's a lot of, in, you know, innovation that happens all the time. So be conscious, even when you buy your appliances. You know, try and uh, ask a little bit, learn a little bit about the 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 the, the, the numbers that you see on the appliances. There are huge uh, uh, savings that one can make just in terms. Of the kind of appliances that you get even in your home. Also, water is another thing. I mean, we use a lot of water in our coal production. You know, it's not only in terms of the water, water, but it's also water that is needed for us to produce electricity, right? And you need to you need to conserve water. What fittings do you make when you renovate your your bathrooms? What are you what are you putting the low flush? It's all these things that we can make. And do you do these things? Personally? I do. I do them. I do. I even recycle. And my children didn't understand. And I started with, <laughs> I started with, uh, with just I bought laundry, what laundry buckets, mm. you know, that I put in my home. I put a black plastic bag. All my child mothers know this, and we put our, we, we, we recycle even the tiniest bottles. I always carry a bag. I take them to the greenhouse because we've got beekeeping going on at the greenhouse. So the beekeeper brings a huge jar of 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 of, of honey, and then we get it get pots, and then I don't pay for the bottle. So, but it's it, and then I they their food processing going on. I, I, all my bottles washed in the separate thing, mm-hmm. right? And just last week, I went to Mr. Price Homes and I saw that they've got these beans now colored. And I was saying to my son, I, I just don't enough, have enough space in my kitchen, but I think I need to buy these because mm-hmm. then it's clear. But I just use simple things. I don't need money to do that. It's just, and you're teaching your children as well. Have my own composting. I live in a suburban area. I've got my own garden. Mm-hmm. I dry my, my, my herbs. I do all of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it starts with me because okay. when the people come to my house, they're going to start asking questions. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this? Why are you so I'm pedantic even about the charger that is left mm. hanging. I, I remove it. Mm. And I do it, I do it often to understand that people will get it. Okay. Right? So and we privileged because the office block, the office we're working in, in the inner city of Jupiter Park, the building is a green building. Mm. It's, it's glass lit. It's, it's built with mud. It's, it's that. Mm. And okay. that's the lifestyle that one has to live. Catherine. I, I agree with so many of the points that you've just made. For me, um, you know, we have to become more conscious of our consumption, mm-hmm. our consumption of water, our consumption of packaging, our consumption of electricity. So it's in your own personal space. You have to make a change. I'm, I'm really big on, we've got a campaign called Waste Stops With Me. And the understanding is that everybody must and can recycle, but you don't need, like you've just said, you don't need the fancy bins. Go to the back of the office block where you work or the spa or wherever you go and you do your shopping, get an old cardboard box put that in your kitchen and just start recycling one thing just start recycling your plastic or your glass or your tin do one thing do it for two three weeks make it a habit and then introduce the second thing Mm -hmm. make it part of your lifestyle people are going to say oh but recycling is difficult people don't collect our waste find a route to work or over the weekend go somewhere where there are recycle bins 
don't make it an excuse that nobody collects your recyclables at home. Make sure that you go by. There are so many recycle uh, systems in big shopping centers and, you know, outside of big malls, etc. You, you've got no excuse to not start recycling. Very quickly, you want to add? Dora. I just want to say that I don't have to take it anywhere. There are regular guys who pass my street every Monday. That's when I always come up. I, I sort it out for the them. Pickers. They just Absolutely. come and pick it up. Mm. It's such a pleasure that we even take our leftover food, whatever, I said, nothing goes to waste. We pack it nicely in containers. They emptied it. We bring the food back. They, we give them the food and they give us the container. It's just, we don't know these people. Hmm. They Amazing. just regular set our door every Monday. Incredible. And they come and collect. Beautiful ecosystem there. Mm. Just very quickly, lastly, last question to both of you. Are either of you vegetarians? So I'm not a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> the beautiful do. silence in that moment was excellent. I love that. I love that. Because so, the reason I'm asking is they say that vegetarianism is the is biggest the most, way. The biggest thing you could do as an individual. Right. Environmental activist. Yes. Absolutely. Unfortunately, not everyone can. Right. Um, it's not something that everyone can do. And, uh-huh. and people should... If that's something you can do, you should do it. Mm-hmm. I do observe veg- uh, vegan fasts throughout the year mm-hmm. for a period of six weeks at a time. But unfortunately, it's not something I personally can do on a constant basis. Mm-hmm. However, it is something that if you can do, you should observe Meat Free Monday every Monday. Mm-hmm. That's something we can all do in our homes. We can implement that as a culture at work. And there are things that you can do. If you can't be vegetarian and if you can't be vegan, make sure that you're Eating less meat, mm-hmm. um, that you're eating less dairy. The 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 impact on the environment from the agricultural um, sector and the dairy sector is huge. So if you can lessen your impact there, you're going to make a huge difference. All right, very quickly, ladies, where can we find you on Twitter, on social media? Dora, let's start with you. Uh, I am on Facebook as um, Dora Lebelo Marema. I'm also on Twitter as at Marema Dora. Mm-hmm. You can find me there. Cool. You can find me on Facebook, Catherine Constantinides or Miss Earth South Africa. You can look for those pages. And on Twitter and Instagram, Change Agent SA, because Constantinides is just too long. So Change <laughs> Agent SA is how you'll find me. Thank you for being my co-host today. You're an absolute an pleasure. Thank I felt you. like I spoke too much. I apologize about that. <laughs> Men are trash. What can we say? <laughs> what can we say? Dora, please, for the last time, very quickly, just give us that basking in the sun for, for the wonderful win that you had against the SA government. <laughs> just just shout yes. it out loud. Just give it a lot. Oh, wow. I'm so, I'm so, I was so thrilled. This is the first of a kind for Life Africa, the organization that made me who I am, but also coming full cycle to serve there as a board. Remember, I'm just it's, it's amazing It's like ah, ah, It's like ah. <laughs> Have yourself a lovely day If you missed any of this conversation Check it out Clipcentral.com Forward slash Frankly speaking Hey climate change is an issue It is happening Get on board And follow these guys They know what they're talking about Have yourself a great day We'll see you next week Talking about Guptas Yes Ciao ciao Cliffcentral.com